Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast, our special Friday interview edition. I am joined, as always, by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Haley Bird-Wilt. She has joined the Dispatch this month, coming to us from CNN. She does a lot of reporting on the Hill for us. And in the new year, she will be launching a Hill-focused newsletter for the Dispatch. You'll be able to sign up for that at thedispatch.com. Dot com. And of course, we encourage you to go check out all of her pieces on our website, thedispatch.com. And so today we're going to talk about Haley's latest piece on what the new smaller Democratic majority will mean for legislation, for Democratic priorities, for the party itself, for Nancy Pelosi. We'll talk a little bit about that letter that the 126 members of the Republican caucus signed in favor of the Texas lawsuit that was dismissed by the Supreme Court. And, of course, we'll end with some veto threats, some veto override going on with the uh, Defense Authorization Act that the president has said he will veto when it hits his desk. And Christmas presents. Let's dive right in. Haley, we are so pumped not only to have you with us at the Dispatch now, officially reporting, being awesome, but also with us on the Dispatch podcast, being awesome, reporting, etc. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You have this piece on our website, uh, and you're making some really interesting points. So fast forward to... January 3rd, when the new Congress is sworn in, they're ready to go, they're hitting the road. And your point is the margin for success on partisan legislation will be only a few Democrats. And that means any handful of like-minded Democratic lawmakers will be able to band together in a small faction and insist that their priorities be reflected. All right. So what does 2021 look like for the House? Right. So uh, House Democrats basically are coming into, you know, the 117th Congress with the smallest House majority either party has had in the past two decades. Um, Democratic leaders are, you know, trying to plan how to do, how to keep their members in line and uh, what kinds of legislation that they're going to bring forward, because it really changes a lot of things when you have um, a margin of 30 votes versus, you know, you have five people who can disagree with you. That, that really does change the dynamic. So um, it, it basically if they're trying to bring forward anything that Republicans are opposed to, which, you know, in the past four years when Republicans had the House, they were bringing forward, you know, the tax the tax bill was partisan legislation. Their attempt to repeal Obamacare was partisan legislation. Things like agenda items and messaging bills that Republicans are not going to get on board with. Basically, Democratic leaders are going to have to keep their members almost completely unified in order to pass those things in the House. So, um, yeah, so I I talked to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last week, and she said, you know, it it gives progressives more power in that way. It also gives moderates more power in that way as well if they want to use it. But she said, you know, it'll it'll be important not to use that very frequently, but it gives them leverage to use when it's absolutely necessary. Do you believe her that she's not going to try to use it frequently? I mean, I do. Yeah, I, she is willing to, you know, criticize leadership. But um, in the past two years, she hasn't, you know, like tried to create her own freedom caucus or anything like that. So 
Um, I feel like we've been at this stalemate in Congress where it's been, I don't know if hijacked is the right word, but nothing's been getting done of late. And by of late, I might mean several decades. But regardless, (laughs) you know, some of that has been blamed on the increasing partisanship of Congress, as you, you know, there are these maps, these over time scales where the two sides move further and further towards the extremes. And those folks in the middle are washing out. They're either not running again, they're losing their reelections, they're losing in primary bids, the endangered middle. Is this going to fuel the partisanship or is this maybe how we get back to a middle, a compromise where Congress does things? Yeah. So I I guess we're going to see that early on because in the kinds of bills that they're drafting, we're going to see what the approach is because uh, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer was saying, you know, oh, I'm in, I'm instructing committee chairmen and leaders to try to bring forward, you know, bills with broad bipartisan support, um, things that we know we can pass, and you know that that will be pretty clear early on. Um, and I would say, you know, in Joe Biden's whole thing has been saying, oh, we we can you know work together, come up with bipartisan legislation, things like infrastructure, but. I, I, it's going to be, a, it's going to be difficult. I, I talked to um, the budget committee chairman, John Yarmouth. He said, you know, even within the democratic party, they aren't able to agree on a budget. Like they haven't passed one in the past two years. He said, it's going to be even harder this year with such a slim majority. And it's going to be difficult to do things like infrastructure. You know, it's, it's a running joke at this point because Democrats have said, you know, even during the Trump administration, this is something we could agree on. But um, things like that are, are going to be difficult when you have a margin of only a few votes. So I, I think it's it could be, you know, the focus could be trying to bring forward things that they know Republicans will support because then you're not really um, bound to these bargaining conversations with, you know, random members of the Democratic caucus. Um, but it, it's just going to depend on how they want to approach it. Steve, the joke in Washington that has frankly gotten so old is uh, every week is infrastructure week because right. it was this concept that of course, both sides, maybe they can't come together on anything else, but, sh- you know, of course they can come together on repaving some federal highways and fixing some bridges because that's so nonpartisan. And the Trump administration announced it was infrastructure week several times at the beginning <laughs> of his term. And so, you know, you'll even see it mentioned on Sunday shows of like, well, maybe it's still infrastructure week. Um <laughs> I hope that joke doesn't continue for another four years. I'm not sure it was funny in the first four years. We will see. <laughs> the, I, I think for for those of us who um, are worried about government spending, infrastructure week always causes me to shudder because it's bipartisanship usually, but bipartisanship um, in, in the joys that the, our our members in Washington. Uh, feel when they get to spend a lot of taxpayer money. Um, obviously, the, we, we, there, there are improvements that are not only needed, but long overdue on infrastructure. You just worry that it's going to become this orgy of spending, um, which, it, which it typically is. Can I go off on a little tangent with you, actually? Because I'm very Please. curious whether where you stand now on getting rid of earmarks. So initially when the sort of conversation happened in DC about getting rid of earmarks, everyone was like, yeah, this is some pork barrel nonsense. It wastes a ton of money. There's, you know, all these things you can list that are just silly, silly spending projects. But at the same time, you probably now can at least, I think, agree that there's some unintended consequences of getting rid of earmarks, which is that 
yeah, if there were maybe more earmarks, more of these things could get done and infrastructure week would have happened because someone or other would have wanted, you know, a post office named after them or the footbridge across a creek to nowhere. Uh, where are you on earmarks now? I'm so curious. Well, should we even be- before I'm, I'm happy and eager to answer that question, but maybe before we go there, Haley, can you give us a working definition of earmark? Um, what it means? Sure. It's, it's like a provision in legislation that a member of Congress, say someone from like a rent, like Iowa's second district has asked for, uh, that helps their district. And sometimes these projects in the past have been, um, not particularly productive and more of a like political waste of money. Um, but they're actually, they're bringing them back this year. Um, Democratic leaders, at least they've said that they're bringing them back. We'll see in the rules package. But um, Steny Hoyer, Steny Hoyer, and others have said, you know, this is actually like a, one of the few ways that members can, you know, actively include their constituents' needs and priorities in legislation. And um, so, so we'll see how that goes in the new Congress. Yeah, that's the best possible gloss to put on it from Steny Hoyer. <laughs> can 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 speak speak to their constituents' needs? Theoretically, any spending that Congress does is for the benefit of its constituents, for, yeah. the, for its constituents. Theoretically. They they say they're going to put more guardrails on it, like they'll publicly disclose which projects members have asked for, which members have asked for, and like they'll make sure that everyone knows what those are for. But I don't know. I mean, I mean I'm all for I'm all for more transparency and yeah. I don't mean to I don't mean to sound like a a super cynic, but I'm pretty cynical about this kind of spending. <laughs> the, the you know the 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 citizens against government waste um, used to put out something called a pig book, which is all of the pork barrel spending, all of the earmark spending, and the long lists of things that um, members of Congress, this congressionally directed spending members of Congress were able to obtain for you know, either government agencies in their districts or you know, f- favored friends um, was, was pretty disgusting. It was the kind of thing that I think actually went a long way to reducing the the faith that people have that anything in Congress was was working. So I'm pretty skeptical uh, that bringing them back will do anything. I think the argument in favor of doing it um, by the proponents of uh, restoring earmarks is, look, these are the kinds of things that get people to agree. And you can actually get, you know, they grease the the, the gears of Congress and, and Congress can Absolutely. move more yeah. easily. I think that's correct as a descriptive um, assessment. I think it's unfortunate as a normative. <laughs> we don't necessarily, it shouldn't be the case that you have to be able to allow members of Congress to give out goodies, specifically targeted goodies, often to friends, politically connected individuals, in order for Congress to do its job. And I think that's, I'm, I'm pretty frustrated by that. Um, but we'll see, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll revise that assessment in two years after we see that all of this wasteful spending did in fact <laughs> grease the gears to allow more wasteful spending. When I saw, remember Matt Gates a few weeks ago basically said, yeah, my whole job is to go on cable news and say crazy stuff. And that's what I consider my main role in Congress. I thought to myself, oh, yikes, that's not good. And then when I listened to him, I thought he actually had a point in terms of his individual incentives. And I think that at least the earmarks coming back with guardrails and transparency and all of that could provide 
individual incentives to other members to do something else with their time. That's not to say Matt Gates is suddenly going to not be on uh, cable news all the time, but rather someone else is going to be able to say, ah, I can now, I have carrots and sticks in this system and we can, I mean, that's why it's called uh, uh, log rolling, right? Like, you know, it's the old timey game where there's a bunch of logs on water and you stand on the logs trying to get them all to roll so you can walk to the other side type thing. Um, it's a it's a balancing act, literally. And hopefully someone will be able to master that skill that I think has died. <laughs> you know, I think we are touching on something I tried to get into in this piece a lot, which was basically individual members today have very little power to influence the legislative process. And so if they want to take advantage of the numbers in this Congress to, you know, sort of have some influence on policy, um, you know, that, that will be interesting to see. But it's also like I spoke to some experts and a couple of members who basically said, you know, this is going to be a very closed down chamber, like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is going to um, even more so than in recent years, you know, have her say on what actually happens and what unfolds. And um, yeah, Haley, someone, along those lines, can you explain what a Christmas tree is? A Christmas? I'm sorry. What? <laughs> uh, when a bill comes before Congress and all members sort of have this equal power to say no, what happens is you end up with a Christmas tree where everyone hangs their little individual ornament on the bill. It's a little amendment here to have oh, this, oh, oh. and I want this, and if I don't get this, I'm going to say no. And yes. so in the end, you end up with a Christmas tree with a lot of homemade ornaments on it, lots of noodles. Honestly, I have not heard that phrase before. Really? <laughs> I, I mean, I've only been here a few years, so. Maybe it's Senate side. I'm, I'm more of a oh, Senate yeah, side I, person. I've heard stuff like that on the Senate side, but. Yeah, and it hasn't been as prevalent as it, as it once was, I think. Yeah. In part so because we haven't seen this congressionally <laughs> Directed spending that that we're right, that right. we're talking about. What what I'm what, what's interesting to me, um, speaking of the, the dynamics between the House and the Senate, is that you know we still don't know who's going to control the Senate. Um, I think the conventional wisdom is that Republicans will prevail in the two elections in Georgia, which will mean that they will retain the control of the Senate. I guess I I don't entirely buy that conventional wisdom, but for the sake of discussion, let's assume that it's that it's correct. It seems to me that that forces Nancy Pelosi's hand even more and puts somebody like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in an even more difficult position because she she can protest. She can she can sort of grind um, the, the House to a halt legislatively. But if what the House passes is you know, an AOC wish list, the Green New Deal, none of that's ever going to make it through a, a Republican controlled Senate. It's not even going to actually come up for, for votes. So it seems to me that if Republicans do win the Senate, you know, the dynamics that Haley describes in this piece and that she described here are certainly in play. It gives small numbers of, of people in the House more leverage to direct the course of the legislative calendar and 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 uh, the outcome of votes, but but it gives them that additional control in a smaller window, right? Because it's just not going anywhere if Republicans. Right. Control this the this is an important point. So, like, I this is this story is mainly about the direction of the Democratic Party and the messages that they are going to bring, like, be bringing forward in the next couple of years. It is not about actual legislating. Um, even over the past two years, 
many of the bills the House Democrats have passed, the, the most like the things that get the most attention are not are not going to become law under this administration. We all know that um, it's going to be the same way next Congress, especially if it's a Republican Senate. So um, it's it's really about that intraparty, you know, squabbling before the midterms. And it's it really has set up the House to be like a, a battlefield between people like Abigail Spanberger and Ocasio-Cortez. Like, so it, it's, I mean, most of the legislation that actually becomes law is going to pass with bipartisan support. Um, but but Ocasio-Cortez and even, um, even moderates who want to have a say in the process, like they're going to be able to have a say on legislation that we we all know isn't going to become law, but you know is important messaging wise um, for the Democratic Party. And Abigail Spanberger, can you give give us a sense of who she is? Right. So she she was one of those fr- frontline Democrats who was elected in 2018 um, from a I believe a Trump district. Either way, it, more of a vulnerable seat. Um, actually, yeah, it was it was Dave Bratt's old seat, I believe. Yep. So um, yeah, she she has got she, you can look up the reporting but she recently after the election was you know blaming a lot of the seats that they lost on progressive messaging basically saying you know I never want to hear the phrase defund the police again like this really hurt us um we need to change the way that we're approaching the public in, in these issues so um there's there's and a she big had divide some there. support she had some support i mean there was some vocal yeah, support definitely. when she spoke out um, particularly after the results of the 2020 elections in the House, I think there were a lot of Democrats who who maybe felt this way, weren't as outspoken as AOC was on the other side. And um, when Abigail Spanberger came out and, and sort of articulated those concerns, she got some support that I think, um, you know, surprised some journalists who cover Washington, cover the Hill, who have focused so much on the, the divisions among Republicans and focused far less on the divisions among Democrats. Steve, there was a call with Republicans recently with Congresswoman Liz Cheney perhaps leading the charge. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, it's an interesting call uh, among the House Republican Conference, um, sort of revisiting this decision over the past week uh, of 126, I believe was the final tally uh, House Republicans who signed on to this brief that went to the uh, Supreme Court uh, in support of the lawsuit that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton brought. Um, frivolous claims, frivolous suit, um, pretty quickly dismissed by the Supreme Court. And yet some 60 percent of House Republicans signed on to it. Um, Mike Johnson, uh, Republican from Louisiana, who's in uh, House leadership, the vice chair of the House Republican Conference, sort of uh, took on this effort uh, at the urging of President Trump and in communication with President Trump, uh, circulated this letter of House Republicans in support of what uh, Texas was doing. pretty flimsy constitutional arguments. Uh, They had been warned about that at the time, but Johnson, in effect, sent this letter to his colleagues and said, hey, Donald Trump is watching carefully um, and he'll be be paying attention to who signs this and who doesn't. So originally it was 106, then I think 20 additional members signed on, 126. 
and, and basically Steve, they say it was a clerical error they just oh, missed right. out on yeah <laughs> this is why i'm cynical i'm trying so yeah. <laughs> hard not to be cynical and this is why i'm cynical so it was 106 and then um they and then added everybody 20. reports on it everybody reports on it Everybody's right. sharing that it's 106. Nobody corrects them until noon the next day when they say, oh, actually, there's 20 more members who accidentally were left off. <laughs> left off. Yeah. And and notably, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, was one of those who was mm-hmm. left off of the initial list. L- let me just ask you, how likely is it that the House Republican leader would be accidentally left off of a list <laughs> in support of the president of the United States? Um, yes, that, that, yeah. is, that is made public. <laughs> McCarthy was asked about this, asked whether he was supportive of the letter a couple different times directly and refused to answer. But then the following day, after the letter got a bunch of attention and President Trump made clear that he was favorably disposed to the Republicans who signed it and frustrated with the Republicans who didn't, Kevin McCarthy's name was on it. Steve Scalise, the number two in the House, had his name on the original version of this. Um, so all that by way of background, there was a call uh, among Republicans yesterday, in which it sounds like um, from the public reporting we've seen and from some some reporting that Haley and I have done on on this, it sounds like the leaders of the effort to to join that letter um, were somewhat contrite about what looks to have been a pretty embarrassing episode for House Republicans. Um, you know, Mike Johnson tried to explain sort of the, the constitutional theory behind this, uh, made the case that uh, it was important to be supportive of the president. But there were th- th- there was some sentiment on the call. And I think Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House, led this saying this was a big mistake. We shouldn't have done this. And I think Cheney was was pretty direct and pretty blunt about this, saying, in effect, that Johnson's description of what the brief was was wrong. He was wrong sort of on the constitutional law, um, saying she was saying, in effect, that the that the campaign uh, that they were claiming that the president's campaign hadn't really had a chance to present its evidence which was false. I mean, there was court case after court case after court case that heard this evidence and in many cases summarily dismissed the evidence. And you know, I think she warned in, in the call about what's happened since. I mean, this has given sort of um, additional encouragement to the kinds of people, including people in the president's orbit, who are making really, really dangerous arguments, um, you know, that the president should declare martial law, that the United States should secede. These are the kind of things that seem that are so fringy, one is inclined not to take them very seriously, not to to think that that they will matter. But when you have, you know, any any kind of a movement that feels as passionately about President Trump as they do, having been lied to repeatedly uh, and told that the election was stolen and uh, all of that against the backdrop of the country coming to an end if Joe Biden becomes president on January 20th, you can imagine that that could fuel some pretty irresponsible and bad behavior. The interesting dynamics and what I'm eager to hear about from from Haley is, um, you know, Representative Cheney is on this call basically um, – Again, I didn't hear the call. These are this is from reporting that we've seen and and that we've done, basically chastising her some of her colleagues for having supported something that was so foolish, including Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, her colleagues in leadership, and Mike Johnson (laughs) in leadership, who 
who uh, ran the operation. Haley, what what does that mean about the dynamics in the Republican leadership on the House side? I mean, it it is a very good question. Um, we actually, when I was at CNN, we did a piece uh, a few a few months ago about how Cheney was sort of carving out this space for a post-Trump world where, you know, she would have supported him on most things, but was willing to not support him on everything. Um, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise definitely are not in the same vein on this and on many other issues. So um, Cheney has actually gotten a lot of criticism from like members of the House Freedom Caucus and others who have said like she's not supportive enough of the president. And um, so there are definitely like some arguments there and some, some rifts between members. But I, I mean, it is pretty uncool of Kevin McCarthy not to answer questions of, from reporters. And, um, apparently if he didn't speak on this call about the actual situation, it's just leaving members in the dark on why he supported it and, you know, what his reasoning was. Um, I don't know. Yeah, pretty amazing that, that the reporting that we've uh, done suggests that he didn't speak up, that he didn't talk about it. He didn't defend Mike Johnson and what he'd done. He didn't defend the letter that he, Kevin McCarthy, had had signed. Um, he didn't push back on on these arguments. Maybe that's a sign that um, it's become self-evident that this was an embarrassing episode. I mean, there was so much <laughs> criticism of Johnson's effort, of the letter, of the court case, even from... I'd say people on the center right who have been, you know, have in many cases gone out of their way to be friendly to Donald Trump and to um, the Republicans who have supported Trump in Congress over the last four years, even from from those places, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, um, National Review was very critical of this effort. Um, you know, it seems to me that that maybe what we're seeing is that they have understood that this wasn't the the best move and McCarthy just doesn't want to answer for it. But as you say, it's, it's odd that if <laughs> the call that the letter is being criticized on this call, that McCarthy wouldn't say anything at all. I think a lot of them just want us to forget that this ever happened. Um, they signed on because it was like the thing to do. And now that it's over, like they don't want us to remember that they wanted to throw out votes in four States. Like here's, here's I will also frustrating say to me. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I've heard varying. I mean, it depends on the district. So for one one office, I heard, you know, they almost exclusively received positive feedback from yeah. constituents. Um, but another office I spoke to, those poor staff members, they said it was like when they were trying to repeal Obamacare, which was a crazy time on the Hill. They're, you know, they're working from home. Their phone systems don't work very well. And they're receiving like calls every 10 minutes, every few minutes of, of people just absolutely furious with the decision. So some office, some offices were just inundated with that kind of thing. And it was, um, I'm sure it did not contribute to a feeling of positivity about the decision. I found Chip Roy to be one of the most interesting characters in this episode. He is a congressman from Texas, uh, won his re-election this time relatively narrowly, but in one of the hottest and most watched congressional races in the country. Um, no enemy of Donald Trump's, right? Like uh, he has voted with him, supported him and all of that, but also marches to the beat of his own drum, certainly. And Chip Roy put out this uh, five tweet, you know, thing saying why he wasn't going to sign on to this letter. 
Respectfully, I will not join because I believe the case itself represents a dangerous violation of federalism and sets a precedent to have one state asking federal courts to police the voting procedures of other states. Uh, uh, I cannot support an effort that will almost certainly fail on grounds of standing, which it did, and is inconsistent with my beliefs about protecting Texas sovereignty from the meddling of other states. Sounds like a true Texan. Um, so Chip, just, of course, Just want to is- highlight there that Chip Roy was Ted Cruz's chief of staff. And so you have him approaching it this way, and Cruz was offering to make the oral arguments for the case. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, uh, I worked with Chip on my very first race in 2002. My husband worked for Chip as Ted Cruz's chief counsel when Chip was Ted's chief of staff. So lots of connections to Chip Roy in this house that I should disclose. But, um, you know, Chip is fully vindicated in the end, right? The case is thrown out on standing. These other members then see sort of the, not just the folly of their constitutional argument, but where it would lead, which is that California could then get involved in their elections or worse, California could tell them what emissions they could have out of their cars. But here's the problem with Congress right now, I think. One of many, perhaps. Chip is pilloried by the right when this comes out. And then there's no like, oh, whoops, our bad, Chip. Thanks for being right. And the problem is, therefore, your individual incentives are always still to win the news cycle, whether it be 30 minutes or three hours, and not to win even the week, right? This was all resolved in days, fewer, um, and it didn't matter. And so it'll be interesting to see in two years when Chip is up for re-election again, whether this is still a thing with his constituents, because I think it could be, despite the fact that we're less than two weeks later and the rest of the people who signed the letter for the most part have backed off of it. I mean, my guess would be that it, it, I don't think it'll be a big deal in two years. I think people will have long forgotten this because there'll be so many things that happen over the next two years that'll sort of take prominence over over something like like this but if it did matter in two years i would think in a district that's as closely divided as his it might be to his advantage you know he took a stand on i mean what what he argued was clearly a principled argument right he made a principled case on the substance and said this is not worth doing um knowing that he was going to take some grief for it uh i think it's the kind of thing that if if you know if he needs to go to his constituents in a general election in two years and say, look, there were times when I took a stand against my party when I thought my party was doing something foolish. He could use this as an example. The question is, you know, is, is Donald Trump and are sort of the Trump forces still enough of a factor that this could get a primary challenge for him in, in two years where they can say, look, he was disloyal to Donald Trump. And, you know, at a, at a time when Donald Trump needed Chip Roy Chip backed off and, you know, undermined the president's effort to to steal back or to take back a stolen election. Possible, and I'm concerned I guess. What, I, I'm less concerned about Chip. Chip's a big boy. He knew what he was doing. I'm concerned about the message it sends to a whole bunch of other members who don't have uh, perhaps Chip's fortitude uh, in general, that what they saw happen there is not a positive roadmap, I think, for how to be a member of courage. <laughs> Well, this is what's interesting, and I'll ask I'll ask Kayla about this. I mean, it, it, again, we don't we're, we're looking at this. We, we've you know done some reporting. We have a pretty good sense of what happened on the call. It, it, it's interesting to me 
if the leader of the effort is on the call showing contrition, sort of on on defense, and the the two Republican leaders who signed the letter said literally nothing, does that suggest that this backfires in a way that's evident to everybody, or at least everybody on the call, and that doing this kind of thing won't be smart in the future? I mean, in that sense, and, and, and here's where I go from cynic to naive optimist, could this be a good moment, right? Where people say, yeah, th- that was incredibly stupid. I'm not going to sign this kind of thing if it comes up in the future. And I'm not going to take Donald Trump's advice if he makes these kinds of suggestions. I think they think that hopefully this is like the last time they'll have to do stuff like this. Um, But I don't know. It just sets the precedent like to be bullied into it in the future. Like if if some sect of your party is just ingrained in like a fake news cycle where they have living in their own reality like do you go along with that or not so i mean several offices i spoke like a lot of staff members tried to convince their bosses not to sign on to this in some offices though like they just didn't even think about it they just signed on like there was no introspection no considering the consequences of it they were just like yeah we'll we'll do it it's fine but i would note um they're sort of poised right now to i think it will be the first veto override of Trump's presidency um, if they if they follow through on this, where Trump is threatening to veto the National Defense Authorization Act, um, which passed overwhelmingly in the House and in the Senate recently. Um, so if, if he does veto it, I mean, we could actually see like one moment of resistance after these four years. <laughs> so back up a little. Tell us why the president is vetoing the Defense Authorization Act. There's then some factions within the Republican Party who want it gone for for different reasons. So tell us where where all of the pieces are on the board right now. Sure. So um, the president, if unrelated to any of the actual legislation, because he has a feud with Twitter, <laughs> wants uh, members of Congress to repeal Section 230 of the community. I think it's the Communications Decency Act. Um, which basically provides liability protections for social media and um, other web website and platforms, stuff like that, from the content that their users are posting. Um, he he wants them to repeal, repeal that, which which members of Congress are not going to do. Um, he also takes issue with a provision that would, um, I think, in three years, eventually lead to the renaming of. Um, current Defense Department properties and, and bases that are named after Confederate soldiers. Um, so he, he's complained about both of those things and said that he'll veto, veto it on those grounds. Um, other members, like the Freedom Caucus, and they're almost always opposed to the NDAA just because of like, spending. They think it's too expensive. So, um, But these folks didn't object to other spending measures that Donald Trump supported. So this is also kind of them returning to their roots as Freedom Caucus and saying, now we are once again against spending projects and fiscal, you know, for fiscal responsibility in a way that certainly has not been wholly consistent for the last four years. I mean, they more more so than the rest of the conference, I would say Freedom Caucus has been more more consistent on that. I mean, they've they've voted against like spending bills and, you know, omnib- like they, they've stayed pretty consistent, but I would say like the overall Republican conference going into the Joe Biden administration is definitely going to be more into fiscal responsibility than they were over the past few years. 
<laughs> okay, so then the president's going to veto this bill. Uh, do a little schoolhouse rock for us. What happens from there? So it de- it depends on the timing. Um, obviously, members are not going to be happy to have to come back in between Christmas and New Year's. Um, but that might be what happens because the new Congress is coming up. So I've seen senators are talking about, let me look at the calendar. I think it's um, January 3rd, that Sunday, the, the old Congress is supposed to stop. Like it's supposed to end. So they might come in like January 1st or something, like sometime that week. Um, but of course, it, you know, any procedural hurdles like Rand Paul or someone like that can make a vote happen later in the Senate than they would like it to. So um, we will see the logistics there um, going forward. But it depends on when Trump vetoes the bill. After that, they have to override it by a two-thirds majority in the House and the Senate. Um, I know some Republicans are not going to support overriding the veto. But I would... I would question the likelihood of them not being able to override because it just passed by like it passed way over the veto proof margin in the first place. It was like 330 or something votes. I have to check. So Trump's walking out the door, Steve, and they override his veto. Is this meaningful or not really? I mean, pro- probably not. Uh, the, the the question I have as I've been thinking about this is whether they would have done something like this if it happened in the second year of his presidency. And I, I suspect they probably wouldn't have. I suspect they would have been much, much more wary of uh, taking on the president in this kind of a direct and confrontational way. You have Republicans who have, t- who have done this in a different um, manner. You have some who have spoken up and said, absolutely, the president doesn't understand what's going on here. His proposal is ridiculous and therefore I'm ignoring him and, and would vote to, to override his veto. You have others who are going along with the president, um, including people who have concerns about this Section 230, um, I think often misunderstandings about what the president is saying or the president misunderstands Section 230 and what it means but are willing to follow his lead on that. And then there's this group in the middle that wants to kind of have it both ways where they sort of understand that, that not passing the NDAA would be bad and have potentially um, significant, depending on how long it was held up downstream consequences, but they also don't want to be seen as bucking the president. And so you had uh, Kevin McCarthy, Republican leader in the House, say, in effect, he was going to vote for the (laughs) NDAA itself when it came up for a vote. But if it if it came up again and um, he were asked to override a presidential veto, he would not vote to override a presidential veto, um, which... And this is why people love Congress. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Either either it's, either it's you're either you're for the legislation or you're not, but he didn't want well, to be in a position I was for it before I was, was against it, Steve. That's exactly what it would be. I mean, it is exactly what it would be. And, you know, look, I think if you look back at what Kevin McCarthy has done over the past four years, this should surprise absolutely no one. You know, this is a guy who came in warning about Donald Trump in the way that many Republicans did and suggested in in private meetings with other House Republican leaders that the president was on the take by Russia, was a a managed asset by Russia. This is Kevin McCarthy saying this. And and later became, you know, the 
the president's most eager enabler, congressional enabler, or one of the president's most eagle, eager congressional enablers, um, dis- despite, uh, I think, his own private misgivings about it. So this is sort of an apt way to end the Trump presidency uh, and, and the relationship with Kevin McCarthy. All right, Haley, last substantive question, at least to you. Uh, are we going to have a government shutdown again? So we might have a like a very brief lapse in funding, depending on when they actually bring forward a bill. Um, I who do will we blame note, this time? Oh, I'm, I would like to blame the four leaders who refused to actually negotiate for months on a stimulus package, um, just talking at each other, not actually like they wouldn't uh, McConnell and Pelosi wouldn't meet to actually talk about any of the stimulus package. And then they waited until there was like some sort of deadline that they could, you know, run up against. So, I mean, I think the system where you only have four people trying to make all the shots and, and craft a $900 billion piece of legislation plus a spending bill is pretty ridiculous. Um, if you had rank and file members negotiating this and, you know, bringing forward amendments months ago, uh, we would not be in this situation. Steve, this sounds a little like a seventh grade group project that I had where the teacher put me with a girl. (laughs) She knew we didn't get along. We avoided each other for like two weeks. Then the deadline was upon us. It was too late by then to read all of Gone with the Wind. And my memory is that we both uh, failed that project. And they had already kicked the can down. Like the the government funding deadline was last week. They kicked it another week. And now they're like barely potentially maybe going to actually make the deadline, but probably not. So that's what I should have done. I should have asked for an extension. I didn't know what yeah. those were in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, any, any, uh, additional takes on the shutdown? I mean, I, I you know, it, it, this is how Congress has functioned, um, or not functioned as the case may be really, you know, not, this is not unique to the Trump era. I mean, this is going back right. uh, years and years and, at some point, we're going to need a functioning Congress. Uh, the incentives are all there to, to have <laughs> these kinds of fights. Many of them are meaningless. And I say that as somebody who is, you know, could probably accurately be labeled an alarmist on, on spending. I'm for spending fights and I'm for spending fights just about every um, in, in just about every area. But doing it this way and otherwise screwing up the way that the, that government operates, I think is irresponsible and isn't the the proper way to handle this. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah 
Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Haley, now we're on to the most important question, which is, what is the best Christmas present you've ever gotten? Oh, I had no preparation for this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, in 2005, my well, I was a young child, but my parents got us a pug puppy for Christmas. It was, we didn't really, so they, it was like a cardboard like poster with a picture of him because we hadn't like actually picked him up yet. And so the, the moment of realization that we were going to be picking up a puppy dog was very exciting. Wow, you're that, actually that bringing up awesome. some really raw memories for me where every oh, no. Christmas <laughs> I kept looking at the boxes hoping one of them was moving slightly oh, or no. making a noise. And um, spoiler alert, it never was. Sad. <laughs> Steve, Sad. Best Christmas present you ever got. Yeah, gosh, I don't know. Um, or that you gave your kids that you were like really proud of, like that, you know, you hit the nail on the head with one of your kids. Um, spoiler I mean, alert for those children listening to the podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so a, a couple, so I'm, uh, this is, I will not go way, way down this road, but I, I like to give experiences rather than material things when I, when, when I can. And so we've done this a couple different times. Uh, the year that we spent in Spain, uh, was technically a Christmas gift to the to the kids, um, they may or may not have accepted it with joy when we first told them. <laughs> We're um, taking you away from your friends for a year. <laughs> Merry but Christmas. they, but they came to love it. Thank goodness. Actually, they had a really good attitude pretty quickly, which was um, one of the many pleasant surprises we had. So we we did it. We did a Disney Christmas once, and um, we it was very fun because we we loaded the kids up in the car. And told them that we were taking them to a movie. We did not tell them that we were taking them. And this was a couple of days before Christmas. And so we went and we did take them to a movie. Um, we, one of the kids, our, several of our kids have gluten sensitivity issues, celiac issues. And one of them had some gluten at the movie theater. <laughs> and no. was potentially not able to get on the plane which we were going to directly from the movie theater. So it, going to the actual movie almost derailed our, our surprise, but she ended up feeling better. We drove to the airport and, and never told them as we were driving to the airport, we just sort of drove to the airport and they were, you know, one of them finally said, where are we going? Why are we, what are we doing at the airport? And I said, ah, oh, we thought we might, you know, go somewhere. And they were like, well, where are we going? What do you mean? Oh my and gosh. Uh, we, we finally got, got on the, the bus from the economy parking and pulled up to the, to the um, front. And my oldest daughter saw the um, destination on our ticket and went to match it up with the board, you know, the, the boarding list and figured out that it was Orlando. And, you know, then they all went nuts in the, in the lobby of the, of the airport. So that was that, I don't know that that was the, the best gift I've either gotten or given, but it was a, it was a fun memory for us. <laughs> what about you, um, Sarah? I grew up in very rural part of Texas. I lived at the end of a mile long dirt road and my parents one year got me a go-kart, like an old school, nice, like real go-kart. My dad did put a governor on the speed, which was a bummer, but 
admittedly looking back, I can't believe they gave that to me in the first place. So the governor like was sort of the least of my problems. Um, I like, I felt like I had a car, you know, and I was just <laughs> riding around that dirt road in my go-kart. I did, um, let my best friend drive at one time and she did, uh, put us into the ditch. And this wasn't like a little side ditch. This is like a full on, you know, four feet down ditch, but that's why you wear helmets. Good times were had by all. Um, I was a huge tomboy as a kid. So that's important to know, like getting, you know, mud splashing up on me and rainstorms and the go-kart was the absolute highlight perhaps of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dispatch listeners. That is our last episode until Christmas. We hope you have just the most wonderful holiday. And especially this year when perhaps we don't get to see our family or even our friends nearby that you find a way to make the holiday special and meaningful and full of gratitude, which we are for you. And, um, and so much this year has really focused for me what gratitude means. And I appreciate all of you who have been a part of that. So have a wonderful holiday season. Have a wonderful new year. And we're going to see you back in 2021.